Check one, two, one, two. There I am. All right. Good deal. Uh, well, good morning. Thanks, band. Uh, my name is Peter Carlson. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha Church, and every now and then they, uh, they turn uh, the elders loose a little bit and uh, ask us to come up and, uh, and preach. So that's, uh, that's me this week. If you don't know me, I'm usually standing over where Mark was uh, leading the, the music on Sunday mornings, um, and I uh, really enjoy that, but it's kind of fun to get out of, my, uh, out of that spot over to here, right here, every now and then. Um, I'm married to Becky over here. She's great. We have two kids, Elliot and Zachary. Um, Elliot is almost five. Zachary is two. And uh, I told Elliot yesterday, hey, uh, the weatherman sent me an alert on my phone and said we're going to get some snow and it's supposed to be a lot of snow, and he's like, oh, I'm really excited, we can go sledding, but not during the storm. And then the reason he said that is because last year we went sledding during a storm when we got a foot of snow, and it was still snowing, and I, I had the day off, and I'm like, Elliot, Zachary, let's go to Sibley Park and go sledding. And they were like, sweet, let's do it. So I pulled them all the way there, and I pulled them all the way up this big hill on the east side, if you've been there, you know. And, uh, and seriously, there's a foot of snow already, and it's still snowing. So we get up there, I get all three of us into this little orange sled, I'm like, let's go. So I push us off. Zachary's in the front because he's the littlest. But I forget that there's a sidewalk halfway down the hill. And I can't see it in the snow, but it's there. And so we get going. We get a pretty good clip. And then we hit that sidewalk, and it's like a jump. So we're airborne. And, and they start screaming. I'm like, oh, boy. So I'm trying to hang on to the sled. But we come down nose first. So like the whole sled flips over. We all spill out. And I'm like, getting my bearings, I get Elliot, he's crying, and I'm like, where is Zachary? I don't even see him. Well, he's, he's buried under the snow, under the sled, under us, basically. So I, I pull him out, and his face is just white with snow, and I'm wiping it off, and he can't even cry. He's so cold. And so um, it, was, it was a disaster, and then I had to lug him all the way back home. And uh, so every time I say we should go sledding, Elliot's like, but not, not during the storm, right? <laughs> We're not doing that again. That was bad. Yeah, it was. It was bad. So, snow's coming. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the key. Uh, but today we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Matthew. No snow. No snow in Matthew from what I can tell anyway. We've been in the book of Matthew for a really long time. We're now in the second to the last chapter of the book. Um, so, we're getting there. And uh, right now we're talking through um, what's called the Passion. So, it's, it's Jesus' uh, march towards the cross, all the events that are taking place as he's making his way there. And really... Um, during this time, Jesus is kind of this central character, this central figure in, in this solar system of other characters that are all just orbiting around what he's doing as he's making his way to the cross, um, reacting to him, um, talking to him. All these different things are happening uh, to these people around Jesus. And Jesus is just resolute, as, as we've said, he's like a steamroller. He's just resolute marching to the cross. And all these other people around him are just kind of reacting to what's happening. And in their reactions, we can learn a lot about those people. We can learn a lot about Jesus and what he's doing and who he is, but we can also learn a lot about um, ourselves uh, through, through uh, their interactions. And that's what's going to happen today through, through a couple characters that we're going to talk about. Um, so today, the name of our sermon is Jesus on Trial, Part 2. Who is Barabbas? Barabbas is a guy that we're going to talk about here in, in just a second who, who shows up uh, during the course of these events. And Spencer preached Jesus on Trial, Part 1, a couple weeks ago, uh, which was Jesus before a high priest, a Jewish high priest named Caiaphas. Um, and that was, that was sort of a, a part of his trial, if you want to call it that, that took place. And now we've shifted um, to a different setting for part two 
of this trial. So, and in between, we talked about uh, Judas and what happened with Judas. Chris preached that last week. So now we're moving along um, in these courtroom proceedings is really what's going on uh, in this passage. So um, just to set us up a little bit, I'm going to go back from our passage to verse 1 of chapter 27 um, to, to sort of set the scene. So um, Matthew 27, 1 and 2 says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So when morning came, this is early, early morning on Good Friday. So Jesus was, you know, arrested in the garden late, late evening or night, Thursday night. He was brought to the high priest Caiaphas, and he's been up all night with these proceedings. Caiaphas and the high priest and the elders are calling these witnesses to bear false testimony against Jesus, trying to get him convicted of something, and they finally get, get someone to say that Jesus made a claim that sounds like he's saying he's God, which is blasphemy. It's against their religious law, so they condemn him, and, and uh, so now it's the morning, early morning, they get the elders and the chief priests have huddled up and they said, okay, we have the conviction of blasphemy. What we want is to put him to death. But the Jews, Israel, is occupied right now by Rome. And Israel is not allowed to do certain things like execute people. The Romans are. So when they huddle up and say, we, we need to get him executed, that means they have to take him to a Roman court and that means the governor of the area, which is Pontius Pilate. So now we're getting into our section, uh, starting in verse 11. I'm just going to read all of it here um, to get us started. Starting in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides... While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was, he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. God, please speak to us through this passage today. Help us to understand these characters, these people that Jesus interacted with um, in his final hours. Help us to understand how to see ourselves uh, in these people and, uh, and what things you're teaching us through these events. 
Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus through all of this, to see him as our hero, and to worship him uh, because of what we learned here today. In your name, amen. All right, so we've got this trial going on with Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And Matthew keeps it really tight and lean in his narrative of what happened here with Pilate. Um, Some of the other Gospels flesh it out a little bit more. Uh, Mark 15 is another place you can find uh, the events that that happened. Um, Pretty similar to Matthew, keeps it it pretty tight. Um, In Luke 23, Luke points out that in the midst of this this interaction with Pilate, Jesus is actually taken out of Pilate's courtroom and brought to a guy named Herod Antipas, another uh, uh, governor of the area, and um, has some interaction with Herod. Um, So that's something we're going to talk about in a second. And then John 18 and 19 fleshes that out a little more between Jesus and Pilate. John points out that actually Jesus is pulled off of the stage a couple times and kind of in the back room, Pilate and Jesus have these conversations where Pilate's, you know, poking and prodding and trying to understand what, who are you? What exactly is happening right now? I don't, I don't quite get it. And, uh, and uh, I've never had a person like this uh, brought to me for trial before. So, um, what I'm trying to say is Matthew leaves a few things out uh, that we'll talk about a little bit here. Um, but what you, should, what you should grasp from all this, like I said, Jesus has been up all night, and really he's been kind of dragged all over the city. If you want uh, a convoluted timeline of what's, what's happened to Jesus, first he's arrested in the garden, like I said, late Thursday. He's brought before the high priest. Again, middle of the night. They're bringing people in who are, who are false witnesses, trumped up charges, um, and he gets convicted by Caiaphas. So then they drag him over to Pontius Pilate. Pilate questions him a little bit. And um, Luke says that at some point someone mentions that he's from Nazareth in Galilee as Jesus' hometown. And then Pilate's like, oh, did you say Nazareth? Ha ha, not my jurisdiction. And actually Herod, whose jurisdiction it is, is in town in Jerusalem right now. So take him over to to Herod instead. Because I'm actually, I don't want any part of this if I can get out of it in any way. So a word on Herod Antipas Herod Antipas is the, the son of Herod the Great, which is the Herod that you read about when Jesus was first born, the guy that the, uh, the wise men talked to, and he's like, oh, you say there's a king being born? Sounds like someone that I should get rid of because I kind of want to be in charge. Uh, so that's Herod Antipas's father that did all of that and um, gave the order to kill all the boys under two years of age. All of that stuff is his dad. Um, Herod Antipas is also the guy that got John the Baptist killed, if you remember that story from earlier, where um, John the Baptist spoke out against Herod's um, basically marrying his sister-in-law and all this stuff, and so he arrests, Herod, he arrests John the Baptist and ends up getting him beheaded um, through this course of events. Herod Antipas has sort of been in it, weaved in and out of this story a little bit um, as we've gone along. And, and Luke even points out that after this happens, Herod and Pontius Pilate didn't really like each other, but after this, they got to be kind of good friends. They bonded over the fact that we both had to deal with that Jesus guy. Kind of, kind of weird, and now they kind of um, are friends after that. So anyway, all of that happens, and while he's at Herod Antipas' court, uh, Herod questions him and then mocks him and has his guys dress him up in a purple robe and kind of just mock him a little bit because Herod was hoping he would come and do a miracle, and when he realized that wasn't going to happen, he's like, you're nothing. So he, he dresses him up and sends him back. So Pilate again has to come out like, oh, Jesus is back. And now he's dressed up in a purple robe and looks like he's been beat up a little bit. What is going on? So all that happens. Then Pilate brings out Barabbas and gets this whole thing going. Then the people start to riot. So finally, Pilate in the end 
has Jesus scourged and then sent to the cross. So you see how Jesus is just jerked around all night, all over the city. All of this is his trial where he's finally convicted and sentenced to death. So he's, he's had a tough go of it um, so far, to, to say the least. But we're going to look through this passage um, through the lens of the three principal characters uh, that we see here. We got Pontius Pilate. We're going to talk about him first. We got Jesus. And then we're going to end by talking about Barabbas and what's his deal. So first of all, Pontius Pilate. Pilate is a Roman governor who is set up to keep the peace in the area. That's his job. Um, a few things that you're going to learn about him is that, yeah, he's a governor. He's a leader of a lot of people, but he's a really poor leader. Um, as you saw from the passage, he, he just doesn't want to do anything. He's, he's trying to shut all this stuff off on other people. Um, he's questioning of Jesus. He, he has a lot of questions for Jesus, trying to figure out who he is. But he's also suspicious and questioning of the, of the religious leaders. It says in the passage, he figures out that it was out of envy that the leaders have delivered Jesus up. So he's questioning all of that. Um, yeah, he seems like he's concerned with justice because he keeps bringing up the point that Jesus is innocent. But he's honestly not concerned enough to take a stand about it and say, look, here, I'm the guy in charge. He hasn't done anything. It's just not going to happen, people. He's not willing to do that. Um, and besides being kind of complicated and having a lot of um, issues there, he's being pulled in a lot of different directions. Um, he's trying to satisfy his duty as a governor to keep the peace, to do what he's supposed to do. He's got his wife's concern, because while he's doing all this, someone brings him a message and says, uh, sir, your wife says that she's had a terrible dream about this guy right here, and she says you shouldn't have anything to do with him. So he has that in the back of his mind, um, that his wife's having dreams, and she doesn't want him to have anything to do with Jesus. He's got Jesus and his innocence to think about. Um, he's got an unruly crowd getting worse and worse by the minute. And then his standing before his Roman superiors. If there, if there is a riot, that's a failure on his part. And they could very well come and say, like, look, a riot has happened on your watch. You're out. We're going to get someone else who can do this job. So he's trying to balance all of this stuff, which is hard. But he's not doing a very good job of it. He wants to deflect this decision about Jesus to somebody else. He really wants to do that. He doesn't want to be the guy that, that pulls the trigger, he want, but he also can't be the guy that releases Jesus because obviously there's a lot of issues going on here and there's a lot of rioting and angry people standing in front of him early in the morning on a Friday. It's hard. So Pilate and Jesus have this dialogue that goes on that we get at a little bit more in John than we do in Matthew. Um, here are some of the, the pull quotes that you get from Pilate through all of this stuff. First thing he says, which we see in Matthew also, but in John, he tells the people, once they bring Jesus up, he says, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. This doesn't seem like it's my jurisdiction. It sounds like there's these religious crimes that he's committed, which we as Romans really don't care about. He wants them to judge them by their own law. But you know what? They already did that. In the middle of the night, they did that with the high priest and got that done. So once he says, judge him by your own law, he starts hearing them say, hey, you know what? Jesus says that he's a king. Isn't that cause for concern for Rome? And from that point on, they start calling him king of the Jews. You see Pontius Pilate call him that. Is, are you the king of the Jews? He's asking him, like, seriously, are you a king? That's all I got to know. If you say yes, you think you're a king, then I'm going to have to kill you. But you're just not saying anything. You're saying yes and no. You say that I'm a king. Well, how am I supposed to do anything with that? 
So Pilate's, you know, he wants the Jews to judge him, but blah, blah, blah. Um, at one point when he and Jesus are talking, um, Jesus starts talking about the truth. And, and uh, one of the great quotes from Pilate at that point is he says to Jesus, what is truth? And then walks away. Like, that's the end of their conversation. It's what is truth? Which is kind of implying that Jesus, in this case, truth is almost beside the point. Things have moved too far. When you talk about truth, it's almost like, yeah, but it doesn't really matter because people are pushing me from all sides and it almost doesn't matter what the truth is. He doesn't really care. And then in John 19, this is the second, one of the second things that he says to Jesus after he pulls him back <laughs> into his office or whatever. And, uh, and Jesus is not, not willing to say anything to him. He's not willing to answer these charges that are being brought up against him. He's just quiet. And finally, it's almost like Pilate kind of loses his temper a little bit with Jesus. You're not talking. So, Jesus, or, so Pilate says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So finally, he's, he's willing to like step up on his, on his throne a little bit and say, like, okay, look here, Jesus. I, I get it. You're not going to talk to me. But just so you know, I'm in charge here. I'm the guy who's going to say yes or no to you being crucified. Just so you know, it's me. I'm the authority here. So you better start talking. You better start trying to defend yourself against these charges. And Jesus answers him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So, so Pilate finally is willing to assert some authority here, but reluctant to exercise it still. But he's asserting his authority, and Jesus' response is, all the authority that you have, I gave you. So you're not understanding. <laughs> you think you have authority, but the subtext here that we know, this side of the cross is, Pilate, this is happening. This is happening. You say you have authority to release me or authority to crucify me, but I have the authority. I have the authority right now. You just aren't seeing it. You just aren't seeing it. So Jesus is still totally, truly in control. It's a, it's a point we've made a lot through this process because there are so many people who say, like, look at this, Jesus is just getting a bum deal. He, you know, he can't get away and all this stuff, and it's just a really sad story for him. And, but, you know, honestly, Jesus is in control of all of this. And here he's saying it to Pilate. The only reason you have your authority is that I, being the God-man, gave it to you, and I'm in control of what's happening right here, right now. Now, the lasting image that we always have when we think of Pontius Pilate is what he does right there at the end, which is what? He washes his hands, right? Finally, he, he brings Jesus out. The crowd is calling for Barabbas. And Pilate finally is like, I give up. I'm sick of all of this. And he brings out some water. And in front of the crowd, he washes his hands. And he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. This is on you, people. You go and do whatever it is you want to do with him, but just so you know, I am innocent of it. And then he says, take Jesus and have him crucified. So that's the, that's the image that we always have, right, of Pilate as this guy up there saying, like, it's on you. It's on you guys. And, uh, and I'm innocent here, right? Well, that's not entirely true which we'll get into in a second. But I want to take a sidebar here because I, I've heard a lot of times over the course of history 
where this verse comes up, where people will say, do you see where it says, Pilate washed his hands, says, yeah, I'm the Roman governor, I have the authority, but I'm washing my hands, and this is on you, this Jewish mob. And the Jewish mob calls out in unison, apparently, and says, basically, yeah, his blood can be on us and on our children. We want the blame, and we don't care. We want the blame. And over the centuries, that fact, that, that verse, that statement from this mob of Jews has been used uh, as a platform for anti-Semitism to say, you know, hey, the Jewish people killed Jesus, and they deserve to be punished for that. And people have used that as, as sort of their, their standing point to say, the Jews said, we welcome the blood of the Son of God on us, and, uh, and we're happy about that on all of the generations after, after this. And that's definitely a misreading of what's happening here. First of all, Pilate is not innocent. Just the fact that he's washing his hands in front of the people makes him innocent? I don't think so. Um, if you look in Romans chapter 3, we see a summation of what is playing out live in real life with Pilate and the people. Romans 3.10 Paul's writing, he says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This right here is playing out in Pilate's courtroom where Pilate has turned aside. The people have turned aside. The guards have turned aside. No one is standing up for Jesus. No one is innocent of what's happening right here. Pilate is the guy that pulls the trigger on this because he's the only one who has the authority to do it in that system. That's what's happening right here. So you can't go back and say Pilate is innocent. You can't go back and say only the Jews should be culpable for this, for this travesty. It doesn't work like that. Biblically, it just does not work like that. All have sinned. And in this moment for Jesus where Pilate sentences him and the crowd is yelling, this is the moment where Jesus is completely rejected, completely isolated, and hauled off. Everybody turns away. Everybody lets it happen. Everybody is culpable for it. So a few things just to point out here. Pilate is guilty of rejecting Christ, just like all of us are, like Romans says. We're all guilty of that. That is something we all incur because we all spiritually reject Christ. This is just a literal live version of that, but we all in our sin are rejecting Christ. And secondly, we, just like Pilate, can't wash ourselves of that guilt. We cannot wash ourselves of that guilt. And we can't outsource our decision about Jesus to other people. Think about that. Pilate is trying to outsource his decision a little bit here. First of all, he's like, take him to Herod. Maybe Herod will do it. Then he comes back. Ah! And then he's like, well, you guys judge him by your own law. And they're like, we can't. We already did. Ah, okay, well, fine. I'll do it, but it's on you. He's always trying to outsource. He's trying to deflect this pointed question of like, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus, Pilate? He's always trying to deflect it. We can't outsource that decision to other people. We can't say, well, my parents are believers, so I'm just going along with it. That's fine. We can't say, I go to Hiawatha, they preach the gospel, and so I kind of just ride the wave of Pastor Chris and Pastor Spencer, and that's just, I'll just go along, it sounds good. We can't outsource that decision to our spouse. Oh, my wife, my wife believes it, and I'll go to church with her, and it's cool, and I'll just kind of let her faith be my faith. That's not how it works either. Just like Pilate, we cannot deflect that decision. We cannot outsource our decision about 
what we will do with Jesus to other people. It's on us. It's on us to make that decision uh, for ourselves. All right, so let's talk about Jesus now. So Pilate was a governor, a Roman governor of a lot of people, with a lot of authority. Jesus is a king. Jesus is king of the universe. Pilate has a lot of questions, a lot of things to say. Jesus is silent. But don't confuse his silence for weakness. Don't confuse him for just like having, you know, this hangdog, like, I don't know, I can't even say anything, whatever. No, it's not weakness. It's just silence. And he's not resigned to what's happening here. It's not resignation, it's determination. He's determined to do this. His strength is disguised as weakness here. But he's not weak. But he is innocent, clearly innocent. Even Pilate can see that. In John 18, there's a fantastic exchange between Pilate and Jesus. So this is one of these times, Pilate says to Jesus, are you a king? Because that's what they're saying. Answer me. Are you a king? This is again in the back room. And Jesus says, Jesus answered, John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king? I'm confused. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's the point where Pilate says, what is truth, and walks away. This is determination. Just think of how awesome it is that Jesus stands there and says, look, yeah, I'm a king, but this is why I came into this world. To be mocked, to be beaten, to be killed, to go through this kangaroo court that they've set up, to go through these false witnesses. I came to do this. This is the purpose for why I'm here. And my kingdom is not of this world, obviously, because where, where are my subjects trying to break me out? They're not here, because my kingdom is not of this world. This is a picture of a hero right here, of Jesus saying, I'm doing what I came here to do. I'm winning the victory. But the problem is, I'm winning a victory for a kingdom that you can't see. So everyone is confused about what's happening here. But the point is, I'm a king, I have a kingdom, but this is how I'm winning the victory for that kingdom, through doing this right here. And after all these exchanges, Pilate and Jesus having all these exchanges, um, it says that Pilate finally, he washed his hands and he delivered Jesus over to be scourged and crucified. And Matthew just glosses right over that word scourged. What is scourged? I'm just going to talk for a second about what scourging is. Scourging is a Roman whipping. Um, back, back in the Jewish nation, when people would get whipped, they would have 40 hits. That was all, that's all they would do. Romans didn't have any rules about how many times they could hit you with the whip. And the whip that they used was called the cat of nine tails, so it had nine whips on the end, and each of them was woven in with pieces of bone and rock and sharp stuff. And they would tie you to a post... They would, you know, take, your, take all of your garments off, tie you to a post, and they would whip you as long as they felt like you should get whipped with this thing. And because of the sharp stuff that's in there, when they would whip Jesus on the back, that whip would stick to his flesh because of the barbs, and then they'd have to yank that off to start over again with another hit. And extra-biblical sources talk a lot about 
scourging, Roman scourging, saying that a lot of people died just from the whipping. A lot of people did. Because they would go so far that it would expose your the bones, your ribs, your organs. The skin would just be peeled off, basically, through this. And they, the point of the scourging for the Romans was not to kill you. It was to bring you as close to death as they could get you without killing you and then keep you in that moment of agony through the crucifixion act on the cross. To get you so close to dying that you're in so much pain that you could basically one more hit would, would kill you with that whip. But then they would keep you there for hours on the cross through all the rest of that as well. That's what Jesus had to go through after this. So after saying, this is why I came into this world. This is why I'm here. This is the victory I'm winning. And Pilate hands him over. That is the first act of his victory is that scourging by the Romans before the actual crucifixion. It's horrifying to think about. So now let's talk about Barabbas. Because Barabbas just kind of shows up all of a sudden, you know. Pilate all of a sudden is like, bring out this other guy. Bring out the third party in this thing who doesn't have anything to do with it, but let's bring him out. Let's read 17 to, let's read a passage about him. Oh, wait, before we do that, that's right. Barabbas is a leader of criminals. So you got Pilate, who's a governor. You got Jesus, who's a king. Barabbas is a leader of a gang of criminals. They say he's a notorious person, a notorious criminal, so he's well-known because of what he's done. Uh, other Gospels point out that he's an insurrectionist, so he led some sort of an uprising uh, amongst the people, which is probably why the Romans have him in jail, basically on death row, because again, they need to keep the peace. He's clearly guilty. He's notorious. Everybody knows who he is, what he did. He's guilty. He is also kind of passive in this thing. We don't hear anything of what he says. He's brought out, and he stood there, and that's it. And then he's set free. The people call for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus, and he walks off that stage as Jesus is getting taken to the post to be scourged, beaten within an inch of his life, killed. Barabbas is unchained and told to walk away. Barabbas is a picture of a theological concept called substitutionary atonement. This is what Jesus did. He became the substitute for the punishment that Barabbas was supposed to get. Jesus took that on. He subbed into that game and took Barabbas out. That's what substitutionary atonement means. So Barabbas, like I said, is an example of substitutionary atonement. 1 Timothy talks a little bit about examples. What is an example supposed to be? What does it accomplish? 1 Timothy 1 says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul here is saying, I was a terrible sinner. If you know the story of Paul, he was a murderer. 
he hunted down Christians and had them arrested and killed. He was a sinner, and he's saying, look, Jesus saved me. He came into the world to save sinners. I'm the chief of those sinners. I'm the worst in my mind. And the reason that he did this to a person like me is so that I can be an example to other people who will believe in him. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul is saying, I'm like an example where people should look at me and say like, you mean that guy? That guy with all of that behind him? He was saved? He was shown mercy? My goodness. Then clearly there's enough for me. Clearly I am capable of being saved as well by Christ, by his mercy. So Paul is saying that here we have, again, a live action example of how this plays out. Barabbas is an example. Barabbas is literally a chief of sinners, literally a leader of criminals, guilty before the court system. And he is one of the first people that Jesus is literally setting free because of what he is going through in this passion walk towards the cross. Barabbas is being set free from prison by Jesus by Jesus taking his place, substituting himself into the place of Barabbas. So Barabbas is an example, Paul is an example, and they're pictures of us. Barabbas is a picture of us. Romans 5 says that, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While Barabbas was still a sinner, Barabbas didn't come to you know, be let out onto the stage, see Jesus over there and be like, oh Jesus, I'm so sorry for what I did. I'm so sorry. Please, please, please just let, let me out. There's nothing like that. Barabbas is an unrepentant sinner. He's hauled out, kicking and screaming. And Jesus takes his spot after that. Isaiah 53 is prophesying about Jesus. It's a famous prophecy where it talks about someone who is coming who will be like a suffering servant. And what does that suffering servant do? Verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Barabbas didn't do anything to deserve this, but Jesus comes out and says, his griefs are now mine. His sorrows are mine. His transgressions are mine. His iniquities are mine. The crushing that he was supposed to get is mine. Chastisement for him, that's mine. His wounds, they're mine. And instead, he will get peace. He will be healed. He'll be free. Literally free. No questions asked. Jesus and Barabbas don't talk here. They don't talk. They're on opposite sides of the stage. They don't talk to each other. This just happens. It just happens. And think about this. 
So Barabbas is brought out. He's hauled out of jail. What's he thinking? This is it. I, I'm dead now. This is, this is me getting killed. This is the beginning of my execution. But he's brought out on a stage. He sees a stranger over there. And all of a sudden he realizes, wait a second, it's Passover. This is when the Romans say, you can pick anyone from death row and we'll let them out just, just as a feast thing for you, for you Jews. We'll do that. And Barabbas realizes, wait a second, are they seriously considering picking me to be released for the prisoner for Passover? Yeah, they are. And then he realizes they're being given a choice. Barabbas or this stranger who Pilate keeps saying is innocent. So Barabbas has to think, oh, they stacked the deck against me. Tricky, tricky. They brought out an innocent guy and said, do you want the innocent guy or do you want the guilty guy? And they're all going to say the innocent guy. And they all say Barabbas. They all yell his name. They chant his name. Barabbas, 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 Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And Jesus standing over here silent, under his breath, what's he saying? Barabbas. Yeah, release Barabbas. I want Barabbas released. I want to release Barabbas. All the crowd is calling for Barabbas, and Jesus is calling for Barabbas. Jesus is saying, I want this. I want Barabbas to go. That's what Jesus is doing. They already had three crosses built. They had the two thieves that Jesus is crucified on either side. They had the crosses ready to go that day, that Friday. Who was supposed to hang on that other cross? Probably Barabbas. They nailed a sign on top of the cross that said the king of the Jews, but that cross was blank before because it's very, very likely that that was for Barabbas, that those guys were his cronies. Barabbas was supposed to be in that middle cross. Jesus literally took that cross and sent Barabbas out. Leave the courtroom free. It's over for you. God loved Barabbas. Jesus loved Barabbas. He set him free. We don't know what Barabbas' response to this was. Did he just go skip off with his thug friends and leave? We don't know. We don't know what his response was. What we know is that Jesus took the punishment for Barabbas because he wanted Barabbas to go. Jesus, maybe not verbally, but in his heart, Jesus said the name Barabbas. Send Barabbas free. We are a picture of Barabbas. We are like Barabbas. And God speaks our name and says, Release Peter because I want Jesus in his spot. That's what he does because he loves us. So, three things as we finish up. Three things to take with you. First of all, we're all guilty. We are all sinful people and we cannot wash ourselves of our own sin. We can't deflect our decision to other people. We are responsible for that. That's bad news. But the good news is that while we were still unrepentant sinners, unrepentant sinners, 
Jesus called for our release. Jesus yelled our name, release them from sin. And he offered his own life for ours. What are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with Jesus, an innocent man, saying, give me his punishment. Give me that cross that's ready for him. Give it to me. I want it. What are we supposed to do? We look to Jesus, and Jesus says, give me your sin. Give it to me. I don't want you to have it anymore. I want to take it on my shoulders. I want to take it to the cross, and I want to do it for you because I love you. I want to do it. I'm calling your name. Get out of prison and run free. We don't know what Barabbas did after that, after he ran free. We don't know. We just don't. But that's not the point. The point is, what do you do? What do you do when Jesus says, you're free. I want to take your punishment. I want you to walk away and be freed. What should our response be? Our, our response should be to walk off that stage and then turn around and look up and see our hero, Jesus, hanging on the cross that used to have our name on it, but now says, King of the Jews, turn around, look at our hero hanging there, winning a victory for the kingdom, his kingdom, making it our kingdom, yelling our name to be free. Turn around and see Jesus there and worship him and love him and talk to him and learn about him. Make him the king of your life. Make him your king. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for substituting yourself and your strength in for our weakness. Thank you for being willing out of your love for us to come and die that kind of a death on the cross. Out of your love for us, for calling our name, calling us by name and saying, come out of that prison. Thank you for being willing to take on our afflictions, our chastisement, our punishment, and setting us free. And Holy Spirit, move in our hearts to understand that. Move in our hearts to see ourselves as condemned and need of, in need of a Savior. Help us to turn our eyes towards you on the cross in worship and in thankfulness and in gratitude. And wash us clean by your blood. In your name, amen.